0: Episode 22, Finding Balance in Our Response to COVID-19 with Dr. Paul Offit. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Excited for you guys to hear this episode with Dr. Paul Offit. I think there's a lot to be learned here. He discusses the risks and benefits of vaccination, we talk about lessons we can learn from the Italian and Singapore experience with COVID-19, we talk about why healthcare providers are at higher risk of acquiring COVID-19, and then we talk about the long-term implications of a social shutdown, and I know this is a sensitive topic for many, and I, I'm going to reinforce this a couple times but number 1 our stance at health, at solving healthcare is we need to listen to our public health officials we need to abide by our social distancing practices and do our part we have to be comfortable having an open discourse on what those consequences or risks of a prolonged distancing period could be and so this is the discussion we have with Dr. Offit. You know, what are the economic implications? What are the implications on our mental health? What are the implications on our overall well-being? These are important discussions to have for the main purpose of can we come up with solutions? Can we come up with alternatives that could address some of these needs? Before diving into the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible. Once again, BetterHelp being that online counseling service providing excellent care for those in need. Use promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. And audible.ca, audiobook service that provides a book a month, a high selection of uh, books to choose from, and uh, use a sign up code attached to the show notes. And we appreciate your support. So, let me tell you about our guest, Dr. Paul Offit. He's an internationally recognized pediatric infectious disease specialist and an expert on vaccines, immunology, and virology. He is the Morris Hillman Professor of Va- Vaccinology, Professor of Pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Director of Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Paul is an co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, and he's also a prolific writer. He's had over 160 scholarly publications, and he has a book that we're excited to see come out called Overkill coming out this April, looking at the overuse of medical interventions and the implications that has on our patients. So without further ado, Dr. Paul Offit. We have the one and only Dr. Paul Offit, author, immunologist, here to talk to us about covid nineteen and first of all, thank you for taking the time to join us on the show today thanks for asking absolutely the, the, One of the key reasons I wanted you on the show was i've heard i 've heard your arguments about the downside of all our social isolation i 'm wondering if you could speak a bit about that.
1: I think what we've done, in addition to social isolation, we've um, pretty much shut down the way we do business in the United States. I mean, people um, aren't providing goods and services. They're not demanding goods and services. They're not leaving their house. Nobody's going to work. Um, Marriott just laid off or furloughed tens of thousands of people. Um, Even crueler, I think, from what I understand, they had chosen to um, just basically give them, uh, they didn't fire them, they just gave them sort of zero. A payment of zero until they come can come back to work, which means they can't collect unemployment insurance. In any case, Jeez. the it just shows you that things are bad when when there's are huge financial downturns. Historically, there have been things like joblessness, homelessness, um, increase in drug addiction, increase in anxiety-related um, health disorders. Suicides um, increase in domestic violence. I mean, that's invariably a, con- a, a a consequence of a major downturn in the economy. We have created that major downturn by basically saying everybody stay home. And I just wish that that the public health community um, was also cognizant of the downside of doing this. That maybe there is a more surgical way to do this than to 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 attack it with a
0: hatchet, which is what we're doing. I guess the question is. You know, it sounds like there's been places that have taken less aggressive measures, say, for example, Britain, and now they are they're trying to um, ramp up their social isolation. So I guess in your opinion, do you think that we're still in a spot where we could be nuanced about this.
1: Yes. I mean, I think the good news about this virus is that he seems to have a predilection for killing people who are older, meaning over 70, and infirm, meaning have comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, chronic lung or heart disease. That's who dies for the most part. Well, with that in mind, you can reasonably say to someone who's older who's in that high-risk group, stay inside. Don't don't go outside. Don't hang out with crowds. Um, Limit your, your exposure to to other people, and that if anyone who's in, in a home, independent of their age, that if they have respiratory symptoms, including mild respiratory symptoms, stay home, and other people mm-hmm. in that house should stay home. But for for, mm-hmm. I don't think we needed to close schools. I don't think we needed to close colleges. Singapore didn't do that, and they have gotten on top of this this uh, pandemic. So I do I do think there was, there were things that we did that we don't have to do. I mean, if 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 people feel well, I think they should be able to go to work. Um, because there is going to be an enormous consequence of this. And I, I just think that we will look back on this and we will find that there are districts or regions or countries that do things differently. And we'll learn in retrospect how much we had to do. But right now, the public health community's state feeling is the only way to stop this, this pandemic is to just basically stay inside and go outside only when you absolutely need to. And we've shut down the way that, that our culture and society works.
0: Wow. Well, actually, I didn't realize, um, Paul, about the Singapore. Like, what had, are you aware exactly what Singapore's measures were?
1: So they had social isolation, but they didn't close down schools, which makes sense. Because first of all, if you close down an elementary school, the, where are those kids going? They're going home. And so they'll get have more time, if anything, to interact with grandma and grandpa. If you hmm. close down universities, which we did, they all get on the planes and now crowd the airports to go home. It's just, you know, I, I just, they're not the ones who are going to generally suffer the, this, this illness. And if they get sick and if they they acquire immunity and they're not going to die, then what that does is increases your level of herd immunity and in many ways protects those who are older, who are who are vulnerable.
0: Hmm. I guess part of the question too is, you know, are we capable of, enforcing such things like you you'll make these recommendations like you know elderly patients make sure you stay home and and whatnot um and I think you would need that for it to be effective but I, I do question whether what the compliance would be if you just if that was the the general message you know more vulnerable patients stay home like do you think we could execute on that
1: it would be difficult I mean it is it is an open society we don't have the um the level of, say, an authoritarian society like South Korea or China. So it's harder mm-hmm. for us to um, to say it's a volunteer system. If you you, mm-hmm. you ask people to stay home, you're asking them to do that voluntarily. We don't have, as they had in China, loudspeakers sitting sitting on the streets screaming "stay home."
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but again, I think I do think we have scared the hell out of the public. I, I mean, you can't turn on television without watching twenty. 24 hours of coronavirus day after day. I don't think, I think we've sufficiently scared people. So I Mm -hmm. I was in the grocery store the other day and there was um, a woman who was, I'd say, in her early 70s and she was shaking. And I went up to her and asked her if if I could help. Was there anything wrong? She said that she lived alone, that she couldn't shop on her own, that, that she couldn't get anyone to shop for her. So she was choosing to shop on her own. And she felt this excursion to the grocery store, which was somewhat packed, was basically an entrance into the world of possibly dying. I mean, she was so mm-hmm. scared. That's what we've done to people. So I don't. I, I think she was, believe me, perfectly happy to stay home. She just felt she couldn't because she couldn't get anybody to shop for. So that's another thing you can do. I mean, really take, mm-hmm. take care of those who are older, who really are the ones who are most likely to die. I mean, if you look at those data from uh, Italy, 99% of people who died had a health problem. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not like, for example, in 2009, when we had the swine flu pandemic in the United States, that, that virus killed 12,000 people. Um, 20% of those people were over 65. Most of them, i.e. 80% were less than 65 and were generally healthy. So this is easier in many ways. And I just wish we could uh, take more advantage of that.
0: I mean, certainly I found when when you took a bit of a dive into some of these illnesses. Like th- that was the the anxiety provoking thing from the H1N1 or swine flu was that, you know, young people were being quite affected. Like I, I remember I was still training during that time period. And we, you know, we put people in their early 20s on the highest level of life support. And you know, at times it's it's dicey. We don't know what they're going to get through. And yeah, I, the one the thing that seems to be quite clear in terms of the typical patient is that it is an older patient. They do have comorbidities, um, but you know, at the same time, we are hearing stories of healthcare providers still getting sick. Uh, there's still always going to be those younger patients that get sick, like we, you know. Uh, um, uh, whistleblower quote-unquote in in china was in his early 30s when and he uh he unfortunately passed away from from this and i think normally that's a big driver you know like uh, when it's an the unpredictability factor about you know younger patients being able to to get sick from this but um yeah it's it's this i do find it fascinating how 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 we've reacted to this because you do make some really good points paul like you know, the when we think about the isolation aspects and and the fact that some people that are reliant on a paycheck right now, like there's there's like extreme down like downhill consequences. Like I was giving an example to a colleague today. I'm like, imagine that you got a small business owner who needs that paycheck and now is has to close the business, and they got like kids and their teens that are getting ready for university or potentially needing that, that those funds for university and no longer having that option. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's pretty intimidating when we think about what can happen at the end of all of this.
1: I agree. And the healthcare worker, uh, you make a good point about the healthcare worker. The healthcare worker is especially vulnerable because they're coming in in contact, one, with more patients who are likely to be infected with this virus because of the nature of their profession. And two, they're coming in closer contact. So they may get a larger burden of virus that they then are confronted with and therefore are more likely to suffer severe and occasionally fatal illness. I think that's the story of the so-called whistleblower in China who was right Mm -hmm. in the center of that uh, outbreak.
0: Yeah, because that's a key. I mean, there's a bunch of qu- like when, <laughs> Paul, when people knew we were, I was uh, going to speak to you. We had an onslaught of questions that came up, and that was a key one. There was like, why are we seeing that higher risk of uh, healthcare providers um, acquiring um, COVID nineteen? And thanks for answering that. Is there any other particulars in terms of why you think that uh, more uh, healthcare providers are are, are acquiring uh, COVID?
1: No, I think that's, it's interesting. How is this virus transmitted? I mean, that's a question you alluded to that earlier. Um, mm-hmm. It's at least the respiratory route, but I don't think it's it's typical respiratory route like flu. I mean, flu you can't really stop flu in in, in our country. I mean, flu sweeps across the country every year, and it'll be interesting to see what's happened to the incidence of flu now that we've done this this extensive quarantining. Has it dramatically dropped? Near as I can tell, at least according to the CDC data, it hasn't, which again shows you that mm-hmm. it's really hard to stop flu. So, I, but we have stopped this. I mean, China stopped the the uh, spread in their country. South Korea has largely stopped the spread. In their country. So so that you can do that tells me at some level that there must be a so-called fecal-oral transmission to this, that the virus acts somewhat like, say, norovirus, which causes kind of regional outbreaks. When you see norovirus outbreaks, where do you see them? You see them on cruise ships. You see them in nursing homes. You see them regionally. So I think that that may be more like what we're seeing with this virus, which is why people get it, I think, when they talk about washing their hands, cleaning surfaces, because that's really how fecal oral transmission spreads it's largely you know surface transmission
0: you're 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 a bit blowing my mind a little bit here because you're not i don't know if, are we talking about this about the uh, possibility that it being fecal oral route like this is I don't know if I've been coming across that theory. Well, there was a paper Um, that
1: just came out in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, um, where what they did was they took um, in three hospitals in in Beijing and in in the Wuhan area, they took um, samples from um, nose, throat, sputum, bronchial washings, blood, urine, um, and feces and found that the, the virus certainly was in feces, not only detectable hmm. by by PCR, which detects, you know, small fragments of the viral genome, but also they detected live virus in the feces. And they're, they're, one of their conclusions in that paper was that this virus may well be transmitted by the fecal oral route. And I think that's true. And I think when you can st- I, th- I think that's a good thing, actually, because I think you actually can stop uh, transmissions by the fecal oral route much more easily than when it's purely respiratory.
0: Right. Because, I mean. As you said, it will be easier to reduce transmission if it is at least if it has a component of fecal oral. Um, that's interesting. Uh, you, uh, you, sorry, I'm I'm a bit blown away at this concept because we haven't talked about it much. Because it's like you said too. You were talking about how purely respiratory viruses typically are harder to stop and. We know from the the measures that other countries have done that we could slow this down at least, huh? No, I, I'm sorry to pause on that for a bit. It's just uh, you got me thinking. So it brings me up brings up another point actually that came up is like h- how long do you think a person that's infected isn't and is, in, in, is uh, contagious? So, so this virus is like.
1: Respiratory syncytial virus, or influenza virus, or rotavirus, which is to say that when it infects you, it really just infects the area where it initially enters the body—so nose, mm-hmm. throat, lungs. Um, that's different from, say, viruses like measles, mumps, German measles, chickenpox, where it spread into the bloodstream and then sp- spread to distant sites. Is more the rule. So if you're infected with measles, the virus reproduces itself in your nose and throat, then it goes into your bloodstream and it, then it goes to the lungs, then it goes to the brain, then it goes to the skin, that takes time. So incubation periods, meaning time from when you're first exposed to time when you develop symptoms, are like 10, 12, 14 days. For, for mm-hmm. coronavirus, like flu, incubation periods usually are shorter because it's just reproducing itself where it enters. Viremia, virus, mm-hmm. and bloodstream is not part of pathogenesis. So I think, I think generally incubation periods are probably less than seven days, which would be typical. And then the question becomes, and this is, is at the heart of your answer, how long are you contagious for? Or said another way, how long do you shed infectious virus? Now, when people do testing for, for uh, COVID-19, they're always doing PCR you know, which looks for viral genome. That doesn't look for infectious virus. I mean, I worked for 25 years with a team at Children's Hospital that developed the rotavirus vaccine. So I am I consider myself a rotavirus expert. I can tell you that um, you will shed infectious rotavirus for about six or seven days after you're infected. You'll be PCR positive for six months. So you, mm-hmm. So although you're PCR positive, you're not really contagious anymore. And I think that's where People get confused when they keep keep people quarantined for 14 days, 21 days. I think that's really way too long, I think, for really? what would be typical for, for this kind of virus. So I think you're probably contagious in that first week, would be my best guess.
0: Wow. Okay. And that's uh, that's very enlightening because as you said, right now we're recommending 14 days of isolation for suspected infections? I think
1: Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania now has shortened that to seven days.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Um, Interesting. So many, I got so many questions. Um, You know, obviously still learning a lot about what's going on throughout the world and, and, and different measures places are, are using. I, I I found it quite interesting, the, the approach in, in, Britain where they were not really doing as, as extensive of social isolation. And the argument that they were making was we want this herd immunity to happen. And when I think of herd immunity, I think of patients that are vaccinated with, you know, uh, with common uh, vaccinated um, uh, viruses. Is this uh, like, how logical of a concept is this? Is there any foundation for this at all?
1: Yeah. So what they're thinking is, Here's a virus that if it's going to uh, kill you, it's going to kill people who are over 70 or so who who have other uh, healthcare problems but it's not likely to kill children it's not likely to kill healthy young adults. If, if you let that virus then spread into those areas by not doing the kind of draconian social, um, uh, quarantining that we're doing, then what you do is you then acquire a lot of natural immunity, which is another way to stop the virus. I mean, how does the virus stop spreading in the community? It stops spreading when people are immune. So if you have a lot of immunity in the population, that is one way to stop the virus in it's tracks. Plus it protects that older person, um, by putting a moat around them so that they, uh, they're less likely to be, In fact, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, typically we use the term herd immunity when we talk about vaccination, not natural infection. But in both Mm -hmm. cases, the outcome is the same. I mean, remember in in our country where there's whatever, 320 million people, about 500,000 can't be vaccinated. So they depend on those around them to protect them. And when you get a high enough level of, of immunity, in, in our case, you know, with, say, measles, with, with uh, vaccination, then you protect those other people. You could just as easily do that with natural infection. However, if that natural infection is going to kill children or it's going to kill healthy young adults, that's not the way you want to go. Here, that right. doesn't seem to be the case so much. So uh, you can, at some level, understand uh, the United Kingdom's argument.
0: Because, yeah, I mean, there was the, that was their initial plans, but they seem to be, as we mentioned before, backing off of that and going towards more the drastic measures as we, as we, as Canadians in the U.S. starting to implement. I mean, you could argue, just don't do anything. Let the virus
1: run wild through your country. There are a certain number of people, a critical number of people who will become immune. This will protect you not only now, but in the future. But that has, you know, it sounds like you're sacrificing some for the good of the many, and that doesn't ever sound good. We want to obviously try and protect as many people from dying as we can. I'm just wondering Mm. whether we um, need to do all the things we're doing, because what we're doing now is we are going to create a massive recession. That has to happen, likely in the second quarter. And with huge financial uh, constraints, which is what I think is a a financial disaster, you're going to have the consequences that are invariably come with financial disasters, and that should be considered too. That too is a public health issue.
0: Yeah, and we did a couple of shows on social determinants of health and how massive an, an impact it could have to be, you know, homeless, to have, you know, less income, especially as a U.S. citizen too. Like we, we've talked a bit about how healthcare is not for all and to be able to afford some some treatments is not always a possibility. So, yeah, that's, that's a, a legit reality. So to be clear… And, and this might be repetitive. If this was your baby, baby if you were running the show, it's Paul's, like, you got the magic wand to say, like, how we're going to handle this, whether it's in Pennsylvania or in the States or in the world. How would you, how would you roll?
1: Okay, so I think you're stuck with bouncing. On the one hand, trying to make sure that hospitals aren't overrun, trying to make mm-hmm. sure that as few people die as possible, with the fact that you want to maintain, if you will, the health of the community, the the general health of the community, the general sort of financial, economic, cultural health of the community. How can you make that balance? So I I would say I wouldn't have closed schools. I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. closed universities. Um, I would have said to that anybody who is over 70, especially those who have health problems, stay home. Um, Anybody Mm -hmm. who's sick, stay home, uh, including mild illness, stay home. And then everybody who they've come in contact with in the home should stay home. Um, I think that people can can go to their businesses. I mean, assuming that they feel well, the minute that they feel bad, call yourself from the herd. And I think that would would dramatically reduce spread um, and may still enable us to have the health of our community such that we're not gonna face the kind of the morbidities that will occur with a major financial crisis, which is what we're, we're trying to do. I mean, the, the Trump administration is trying to just catch up with this, with this sort of massive package of putting money back in people's pockets. but. They're not going to spend that money if they're all staying home because they're scared to walk outside. So I don't, I don't see this as necessarily solving the problem.
0: And maybe this will speak to a little bit of, of the differences. Like, what do you, what do you feel happened in Italy? Like in your opinion, like why, like, I think this is what everyone's afraid of and you're hearing stories. Now we just did an interview with a colleague in, in Washington state. And you know, I think things are escalating there. Like, like what has happened in some of these other centers that have caused such an overwhelm to the system?
1: All right. So so Italy is an outlier. Italy has, I think now 3,200 deaths, which surpasses China. Italy has a population of 60 million people as compared to China's 1.4 billion. So Clearly, they've done much, much worse than China did. Why? Mm. I think two reasons. One is they do have an older population. The percentage of people in Italy who are over sixty-five is twenty-five percent, as compared to say roughly sixteen percent in the United States. Secondly, if you look at the the um, who gets sick and who's dying, it's primarily those in the northern region around Milan, not the southern region around Rome. And it's a rural economy. It's it's so, so there's a lot of sort of small towns distributed throughout the northern part of italy and without the sort of healthcare infrastructure especially intensive care infrastructure that exists in the southern portion of the country so i think it's the combination of those two things there's there, and maybe it's also because they are maybe more likely to smoke but i'm not sure they're they're necessarily more well that may be also part of it it's certainly that increases your risk of respiratory disease if you're a smoker so that may mm-hmm. be part of it but i think the bigger part is they're older and the level of health care actually in uh, at least intensive health care in northern italy is not what it is in many other developed world countries.
0: Okay. And so then to be clear, with a method that, as as we talked about, that's trying to do the the balancing, with the, you know, focusing on the, the old, continuing to have the schools open and universities open, having maybe a certain level of immunity running through the youth anyway, because we haven't mentioned this, but we've mentioned this on previous shows, like young people seem to be Tolerate this virus, okay? Um, w- you wouldn't be anxious about overrunning hospitals, or uh, d- uh, by overrunning, I mean, by having capacity strains uh, within hospitals. Um,
1: sure, I mean, you're always worried that you're not doing the right thing. I, I do think that there, it- it's th- the thinking though, of the public health community is not to try and preserve the culture or business culture as we have it. That, that's not their interest. Right. And and all I'm trying to argue is that there is another side to this and there is a mm-hmm. a public health component to that that's not being mm-hmm. considered. So I do think it's a balance and I think it's not a perfect balance. I, I don't know what the perfect balance is. It's not a, what I'm arguing for is not a clean solution to the problem. It's just mm-hmm. a, a another solution that may in the long run be a better solution.
0: Yeah. And and to be fair to you, Paul, like it's just not a conversation we're having much of. Do you know what I mean? Like we're not and maybe it's because of how deep we're into the into the virus and, and the unknowns, but we really have at least someone that's I mean, I'm obviously dealing mostly with the acute care stuff and that's where my focus has been. But from what I've seen, I'm not hearing this conversation at all really I think, and I, I don't know if you find the same you
1: know I agree I, th- I think we may only know in retrospect that when we we look mm-hmm. at sort of districts or or, uh, or states or countries that do things differently and we'll see what the outcome was in those different regions I think we will learn about this looking backward um right mm-hmm. now we're just taking our best guess but no matter which route we take there will be a downside
0: mm-hmm.
1: the only question is how big and how long
0: how big yeah no fair enough Paul um, just a couple of uh, specific questions people were asking about uh, online. Does it, was You'll hear or read about s- some climates being less likely to, re- how do I say this? Does climate affect transmission of COVID-19? Does that seem to have any impact?
1: We'll like, find out. I mean, what I would say is this. We certainly know that there are human coronaviruses. Um, those human coronaviruses which have been, were first identified in the early 1960s are generally winter-spring diseases. Um, I would mm-hmm. say 15 to 20% of the kids who come into our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, in a winter month, will be infected with one of those human coronaviruses. The question is whether this coronavirus, which is a bat coronavirus, I mean, it's really not a human strain. It's, it's 96% by sequence bat coronavirus. Will it act the same way that human coronavirus acts? We'll see. I mean, we, we we'd like to believe, that it will act like human coronavirus, and that come June, you know, May, June, that we'll start to see a decline just because of the weather. Now, why that's true, I don't know. I I mean, for example, Mm. polio is a summer gastroenteritis. Rotavirus is a winter gastroenteritis virus. I mean, there are—why that's true, I have no idea. You think it's an infectious Mm. disease specialist. I would have some idea. I have no idea why that's true. So I hope this bad coronavirus does act like human coronavirus, but time will tell.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. And one thing that we haven't talked about was the, the possibility of vaccines and the upside or downside of developing a vaccination, developing vaccination for coronavirus. Do you have an opinion on, uh, on that? Sure. Well, I mean,
1: as I said earlier, I did, uh, we did create the strains in our laboratory, but that became the bovine human reassort and rotavirus vaccine road attack. It took 26 years to do that. So, um, the, the, uh, the notion that one could roll a vaccine out in 12 to 18 months is ridiculously optimistic uh, uh, for, for these mm. reasons. There is no other coronavirus vaccine. I mean, if we'd had, for example, a human coronavirus vaccine, and now we're trying to make a bat coronavirus vaccine, then you'd feel like you at least had, had a head start. We don't have that. The good news is, I think we know what we're trying to do. We're trying to make antibodies to the protein that sits on the surface of coronavirus the so-called glycoprotein. If you can make Mm -hmm. antibodies to that protein, then you can prevent the virus from binding to cells and causing disease. So that's good. Now there are sort of three approaches that people are taking. One is, to inject people with messenger RNA, which would then be translated into a protein that would then induce the immune response. The second is is DNA, which, so the first approach is by a company called Moderna. The second approach is by a company called Inovio, which is a DNA vaccine to inject the DNA that represents that particular protein, which is then transcribed to messenger RNA, which is then translated to protein, which then induces an antibody response. The third approach is the actual protein, So you use a sort of recombinant DNA technology to make a protein. That's the way the hepatitis B vaccine is made. That's the way the human papillomavirus vaccine is made. The good news about that approach is at least it's been done before. I mean, you know, at least we have purified protein vaccines on the market. There are no mRNA vaccines on the market. There are no DNA vaccines on the market. So if you're the FDA, you're a little nervous about that. You want to make sure that there's no surprises here. Um, now the mRNA vaccine is now in human trials in uh, at least phase. I assume phase one safety immunogenicity trials in in uh, in uh, in Washington State. That's pretty fast. It makes me a little nervous. Here's what you want to make sure. You want to make sure this is a safe vaccine because remember most mm-hmm. people who are going to get it are probably going to be healthy adults. Who are not going to be killed by this virus so you sure want to make sure certainly want to make sure that it's a safe vaccine and and you want to do the appropriate animal model testing you want to do slowly do your phase one phase two testing to make sure you do increasingly larger numbers of people to make sure it's safe increasing the larger number of people to make sure it's immunogenic i think where people got fooled was with ebola when ebola hit west africa and we had a, a, a vaccine immediately people thought well that's easy that's not hard. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, people had been working on an Ebola vaccine for 20 years. They'd already done safety testing in animals they'd, and, and immunogenicity testing in animals. They'd already done phase one and phase two trials. That vaccine was in a vial ready for an efficacy trial. And th- that's what happened when it hit West Africa. That, that's not it. Mm. Is. So, I mean, I think, you know, when the Trump administration stands up on the platform and says we're going to have something in two months, that makes me very, very nervous. You want to make sure this is safe before you put it into people.
0: So yeah, in your so in your in your you'd be surprised if there was something available in that kind of like one to two year period.
1: Surprised and a little nervous. I just yes. I really like to see extensive animal model testing in phase one and phase two testing. I I, um, I applaud the this the uh, the country our country for trying to do this as quickly as as we can. I just want to make sure that the people who are receiving this, those who are very unlikely to die from it are given every benefit as far as knowing about its safety uh you know you otherwise you're going to really lose confidence i think out there in what the way we do things
0: yeah fair enough um i'd love to hear what anti-vaxxers are saying no it's funny Uh, i can tell you what they're saying
1: (laughs) i I put a post on my facebook page which basically said some of the same things and i was just embraced by the anti-vaccine community which makes me think you know i'm probably wrong but they uh <laughs> they saw me making kind of an anti-public health stance which i really wasn't making i was just arguing for a nuanced public health stance
0: yeah uh, it, we all want vaccines to be did. safe
1: I, I don't think my opinion is any different than anybody else's
0: no i i, I hear you are you a uh, 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 aware of some of the t- current treatments or excited about any of the treatments that are out there currently for COVID-19? Right, so
1: so COVID-19 um, has a protease, um, as an enzyme that it uses to help itself uh, reproduce, just like human immunodeficiency virus does. So remdesivir, which is a protease inhibitor made by Gilead, has now been put forward as a possible treatment, as well as, as, well as one anti-malarial drug. I, I would just mm-hmm. say this, again, Test it. I mean, it's all testable. We don't have to look to the gods to see whether or not these things work. You can test it and, and make sure that you have control groups that you can say this works and, or it doesn't work. Because again, mm-hmm. th- in medicine, and you know this better than me because um, you're more on the front lines than me, um, you know, when you give something, either you can make something better, you can do nothing, or you can make them worse. You just want to don't want to take people who are going to stay the same and do better and make them worse. Then you've really done harm. Which is why, interestingly, the FDA... Um, does not use the term compassionate use anymore. I don't know if you noticed that that's dropped out. The companies no. will still use it because if if you hurt somebody, um, there's nothing compassionate about that. So uh, you shouldn't use that term.
0: You know, we have a lot of mixed messages around airborne versus droplets uh, in terms of transmission. You know, like um, certainly we know that there's some places running out of N95 masks or certain types of uh, PPE. In your best estimates, what is your opinion in terms of the main uh, precautions that, that would be necessary in, for the general? I think world? if
1: you're on the front lines in, in healthcare community, um, wash your hands frequently. And I think if you're like in an emergency department and seeing people with respiratory disease, I think it's reasonable to wear an N95 mask to protect yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I think anybody who is infectious, um, you know, should be obviously isolated. And if they're going to walk outside, you know, they should wear an N95 mask, which they won't because they're impossible to get. What worries me a little bit is when people wear that sort of rectangular surgical mask and, and they're think, well, I have mild respiratory symptoms, but now that I'm wearing the mask, nobody else can get it. Bad idea. Stay inside that mask. Cause you can still breathe through the sides of that in and out through the sides of that. So it's not, it's a false sense of, of, Protecting your neighbor by doing that, so I would say that. But I think the healthcare workers, you see, you, I mean, out there on the front lines, are are at risk, and um, so you need to make sure that you protect yourself.
0: Yeah. Oh, amen. You know, we got to be able to to be able to take care of others. We got to be able to stay healthy. Before diving into your the book a bit, uh, is there any is there any other key points that you you would want to mention, Paul? I, I I think one of the messages we should have is to set a time limit
1: on this. I mean, I would love to hear um, those who represent the public health community or the administration say, look, we know this is hard. We know this is really difficult. Um, We're just trying to make sure as few people get infected as possible. Why don't we say this? Like two weeks, we're going to reevaluate what we're doing. We're going to look at all the the data and see whether we need to keep doing this or whether we need to modify it, whether we we need Mm -hmm. to send kids back to school or whatever, Um, and then give it another week or two. You know, just just, because right now you just get the sense you're in this Endless abyss where there's no end. I mean you hear you know people like Bill de blasio from New York saying, you know this could go until September um you know it just mm. it's just it's really disheartening and so it would help to have that kind of leadership I think
0: yeah i I for me one of the anxiety provoking things is that element of how long is this going to go on you know like um how long are we going to be self isolating how long before we return to our normal lives and you know it's we do our best to do it to just you know take it a day at a time but it's it's scary you know to I be know. honest with you and um, I think that would be a it would be nice to have kind of like a clear message where we are going to re- constantly reevaluate this and see what is necessary. I I told you this before we started your book it's called Overkill it's coming out on in april i'm wondering if you could speak a bit about that because i mean i obviously haven't got a chance to read it yet but the principles behind the book are right up our alley in solving healthcare so i wonder if you could just speak briefly about uh, the book coming out in april
1: yeah so the subtitle of overkill is when modern medicine goes too far and it looks at um those situations 19 situations in which there's abundant scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something but we do it anyway either for because of inertia because of lack of understanding, whatever we continue to. So, so for example, there's abundant evidence you don't need to finish the antibiotic course. I mean, you'll, you'll see, as you read through that, that chapter, what that evidence is, we really shouldn't treat fever. Fever is, is, um, is there to enhance our immune response? That's why we mm. make fever. Everyone makes fever for a reason. We pay a metabolic price for that. We do it for a reason because it helps us. And there's a lot of data on the fact that if you treat fever with antipyretics, antifever medicines, you can prolong or worsen illness. Do mm. hearts or heart stents really? Do they really work? I mean, although that may sound amazing, there are there are pretty good studies showing that 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 actually that as compared to sort of rigorous medical care makes no difference. Um, Knee arthroscopies, um, you know, things like uh, low T, you know, treating uh, these testosterone supplements for low T, bad idea, taking mercury fillings out of your mouth, bad idea. Um, So, you know, whether prostate screening programs may do more harm than good, same thing for thyroid screening programs, breast cancer screening programs, you know, aren't exactly as advertised. Um, So just it takes a closer look at some of the things that, we do and and because I think we should always be skeptical of what we do or else we won't get better at it.
0: I, I love the principle. I and I, I'm I'm looking forward to to reading that. And then we'll make sure to have links to the show notes. <laughs> Paul, I thought I thank was just you.
1: alienate the, the few remaining people that like.
0: hey man the anti-vaxxers are, are will be knocking on your door <laughs> praising you. Um I I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and honestly I I I, I hope we get a chance to have more conversations in the future. Cause it's nice to have that alternate perspective on many of these issues. And, uh, cause I think that's what some of this in general is missing is, you know, that balanced argument and that balanced, uh, feedback. So, yeah, I really appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks everybody for listening to episode 22 with Dr. Paul Offit you want to leave any comments leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com follow us on twitter instagram and youtube at quadcast i do want to do a quick shout out to new group member and note taker jacob Rannett. i uh, appreciate you doing the show notes and welcome to the team my friend and i just want to do another shout out to the frontline workers uh physicians respiratory therapists physiotherapists nurses all doing their best to tackle our challenges ahead with COVID-19 so I just want to just want to let you know that we appreciate you and your efforts are everything all right thanks for listening guys we'll talk soon